Every day it seems we are confronted with a world that is not right. I mean, if you read the news or you just go through your life, you, your heart will constantly be pricked and, and grieved in some way just over the wrongness of things and the injustice of things. Things are not like they ought to be. Wouldn't you agree with me there? <clears throat> Terrorists uh, ought to be hunted by every government on earth and not quietly supported by many governments. And people shouldn't be starving because their rulers won't allow them to have relief food and they take it for themselves. And priests ought to be the kind of men that they can be trusted with children. All of them should be like that. And the media ought to teach virtue and everyone ought to deal honestly and the government ought to be efficient and good ought to triumph over evil. All those things we believe, we look to. They ought to, they should be that way, but it isn't that way. Something's very wrong and we know it. And the fact that we feel in our souls these oughts, these things that ought to be, these feelings of how things should be, says a lot about the way the world actually is. Why do we feel that way? I mean, I guess that's the, the big question. Why don't we just accept injustice and cruelty and hatred and fear and strife and all of these things, often things that don't even touch our lives? Why do we, those things bother us? If you're going to have a correct philosophy of life, you need to account for the wrongness of the world and why we feel like it's wrong, so passionately. And that might be the question. Why is the world so wrong and why do we care that it is? Can you explain that? I would pay a lot of attention to the person that could answer that question. In fact, when I was a young man in college, I did just that because I had to have answers for the wrongs in the world and why I wanted to put those wrongs right, not only nationally and globally and all of that, but even within my own heart. I had to have an accounting for why there was so much wrong there and why it bothered me that there was wrong there. And I've only found one answer to that question or these questions and that, that even remotely touches the depth which the answers must call for. There's only one source that made sense out of the wrong and the oughts the wickedness of the world and why we feel it should be different. And that's the Bible. That's the only place you find the answer to that question. The Bible explains perfectly man's condition that he's lost, that he's cut off from God, that he's a cosmic rebel, that he is a doer of foul deeds. Man sinned and fell into a condition of perpetual wickedness because he has been expelled from fellowship with God. So he gropes about on his own. He makes up his own rules. He's made in God's image, so he is inherently, inescapably moral. And yet, he has this sense of right and wrong, and yet he is fallen. And he is guilty of the very things he hates and condemns in other people. He fails himself. And that is the situation exactly as we find it and exactly as the Bible describes it. And in my mind, the Bible wins hands down the reality test. And I personally, when I deal with big questions and philosophy type questions, it's got to, fit, it's got to pass the reality test. Does, does this idea fit the way things are? Yes, the Bible does. And nothing else does. I've never heard another accounting for these questions that even begins to come close to making sense. Now, there's some good news about all of this. All of those things that should happen, the oughts, what ought to be, they will be. All those things that ought to be, 
will be. There's a special phrase in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that speaks of a time when what ought to be, will be. You see this phrase many, many times, and it's usually said like this, in the last days, or in the latter days. These words, in the last days, speak of a time that is still future from even our time. And if you examine all the uses of this phrase in the Bible, it becomes clear that this is the time of Messiah's power when it talks about the last days. It includes the events surrounding his return and it extends through the time of his rule upon the earth. And the Bible devotes much space to this subject, much space, and, and in many different places. God wants Israel to know that the covenants will be kept. And he wants all of us to know that there will be a time when what ought to be will be. The world will be made right. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming back. He came once to bear our sin as God's Passover lamb, the sacrifice, meek and gentle, pure and sinless. He showed us in an incredible way God's redeeming love. When he comes again, it will be to reward and bless those that he has redeemed, but also in the exercise of great power and wrath against wickedness. He will right the world's wrong. And here on earth, he will live. And Jerusalem, instead of being a city of explosions, will be the capital of his kingdom. And the world will be united under his power and benevolent rule. It's a big topic in the Bible. We can only just scratch the surface this morning. But I want you to look at Micah chapter 4, what Micah has to say about the last days. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Now, the mountain is the holy mountain on which God's temple will sit, the house of the Lord. It will be huge. In the eyes of the world, you know, today Jerusalem is a mountain, one of those interesting mountains that has a lot of historical and religious significance. But in the time of Messiah's power, this part of the world will be the center of everything. It will be the chief mountain. Micah says it will be raised above the hills. Now, he could be speaking somewhat metaphorically that it will be the greatest, most important place on earth, but he could be speaking even physically of a physical transformation because a physical transformation will occur when Messiah comes to the earth. Zechariah, another one of the minor prophets, chapter 14, verse 4, it says, in that day, again, talking about the last times, it's another common way of saying it, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be 
as in summer as, in, as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, a very specific place. And people will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. What a blessed hope that must be. A physical change actually happens the moment Christ arrives. Now, the temple during the millennial reign of Christ, what we call that thousand year time, the spiritual center of the world is described in great detail in the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Eight chapters are devoted to a temple that does not yet exist. Describing it, its dimensions, the sacrifices that are going to happen there and all these things about it. Eight chapters. The whole layout of the land will be different with the temple at its center. And many scholars believe that the temple will be set on its own mountain, specially created for it, outside the city of Jerusalem to the north. And if so, the chief mountain will be near Jerusalem, but not inside it. Jerusalem will be the political center of the world. And this mountain with the millennial temple on it will be the spiritual center of the world. Now, this description then probably includes these physical changes. Micah describes the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. But more is suggested by this idea of chief of the mountains in, in a physical sense. The last line of verse 1 in Micah chapter 4 tells why it will be so important. It says, and the peoples will stream to it. Notice it does not say people. It's a plural word, peoples. Look at verse 2. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways. You see what's being said here? Many nations, peoples, not historically committed to Christ will seek to know God's ways from him directly. And Israel will be the center of the world as God promised all along that it would be. Now let me clarify a point about who lives in this uh, millennial time. We can't go through all the details in the Bible right now, but you all know the kind of the layout of the end. There's going to be a lot of trouble right before the end. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. The whole world will be under great travail. Isaiah describes it as the the earth like it's like shaking a tree and all the fruit falling out of a tree this incredible shaking of the, of, the, of the world itself it says the earth will teeter and go back and forth and totter and, and all kinds of disastrous things are going to happen you read the book of Revelation all the plagues that come upon the world and out of that people that have come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they'll be from all the peoples on the face of the earth not only will be there a, a vast force of evangelists and Revelation implies Jewish evangelists who are going to spread the gospel all over the world. But even angels will fly through the heavens crying out the gospel. And people will believe. And those that live through all that time of turmoil and are still alive at Christ's return will enter into and populate the world under Christ's reign. Those that don't believe will be taken out, sent away to judgment. The sheep and the goats separated. But those that are his will remain and live in this world. 
but there'll be people from every place. In fact, the New Testament expression is this, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the earth. They'll all be there. God's interest has always been all peoples. And his plan, which nothing can thwart, will be fulfilled in the joy and the worship of all peoples. That is seen in the very, very beginning. When God made a covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis, the unconditional covenant we talked about a couple weeks ago, God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, this is when he first spoke to him, he said, I will make you a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I will make you a great nation, but in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now modern Jews point to their accomplishments that have benefited the world. They're, they're doctors and they're scientists and they're philosophers and they're entertainers and all of that. But biblically, you can follow this promise right along. And it's the Messiah that the nations of the world will be blessed by, not just a certain giftedness amongst a group of people. And that's not to take anything away from Albert Einstein and Jerry Lewis and stuff, but I mean, the, the, all their accomplishments are, are, are great, especially if you live in France. Jerry, Jerry Lewis means a lot more there than he does here. But um, the Bible's talking about so much more than that, than science and doctors and the bellboy, you know. The promise to Abraham, made possible by Christ's atoning death and resurrection, is fulfilled in the day of Christ's rule over all the nations. It is talking about the world coming into a right relationship with God, desiring God, forsaking paganism and false religion, and seeking after God's righteous path. That's going on now in, in, a, in a way as the gospel goes out across the world and converts people. You know, my ancestors, we don't worship Odin anymore or any of those people. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the true God through him, the Messiah. But it's going to be much beyond that. We're living in an alien world. We're strangers and aliens, the Bible says, in this world being God's people. But it's going to be the other way around when Jesus comes. It's going to be his world and we're going to fit right in. Those who believe in him are going to belong. In Christ's kingdom, these peoples that come to him, let's say you come to Christ during the Great Tribulation when the earth is being blasted by angels and all these horrible things are happening. You might be a Christian for a year or two and you might spend a lot of your time hiding, barely scraping out, finding food somewhere. Christ comes back. He brings you before the judgment throne. He recognizes you. He says, come into the kingdom. You enter in. Well, now what? There's just a long time for learning and growing and spiritual development. These aren't people that have died and gone to heaven. These are just people that are living in the regular world. In their flesh, just like we are now. And they're going to have to learn and find out information and knowledge. And you know where they're going to go? To the temple. The temple in Israel. And God's people, the, the Jewish people, the Levites, are going to be all there. A kingdom of priests, just like they were always meant to be, to teach God's word, to glorify the Messiah, to give knowledge. Christ himself will reign in Jerusalem and solve the world's problems. Micah 4.2, the last two lines, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the political dimension to all of that is the wisdom of Messiah in solving the world's problems. 
But what about this? Here's what you need to do about that. This is how we're going to fix it. Verse 3 tells us how great indeed Messiah's blessing will be to the whole world. He will judge. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty, distant nations, like our own perhaps. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Does that sound familiar? You know where some of those words can be found inscribed on a building? Do you know? In New York City? On the United Nations building? Those are the words that are found on the United Nations building. Not all the words. These words. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they train for war. That's on the United Nations building. Is it working? Is this text talking about the United Nations resolutions and little white trucks zooming around looking for weapons of mass destruction? Is that what it's talking about? Is it talking about UNICEF? The arrogance of putting part of verse 3 on a building that is a proclamation of the unity of mankind that will solve its own problems. And leaving off the beginning of verse 3 is really an arrogance at the most incredible level. Because verse 3 doesn't say the United Nations will get everybody to turn their swords into plowshares. It says, He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty nations. And it's not talking about Kofi Annan. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I'm sorry, but will the UN provide the level of trust and wisdom and have sufficient strength to lead nations to true peace? Where security and justice will be so firmly in place that there won't be a need for weapons anymore? Is that going to happen? It ain't going to happen. But when Messiah comes, wisdom and justice and peace will be the order of the day because he is wisdom and justice and truth, and power. And he will have the power to establish justice. You know, other places in the Bible give us pretty strong indications of that. Psalm 2, just one of the great messianic psalms. You know, there's some of the psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, I mean, about the Messiah. They're just incredible. But Psalm 2, it says, I will surely tell of the, the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do homage to the Son. Take refuge in the Son. Zechariah chapter 14. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booth. That's Zechariah 14, 16. You understand what he's saying there? All the nations of the world that were fighting against Jerusalem, that were going against Israel, 
And at the end, that looks like quite a confederation if you add them all up. Those very peoples will be going up to celebrate the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem and worship the king there. And who's that king? The son of David, the Messiah. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booth. That's part of the rod of iron thing. If they decide over the course of time, we'll talk about why this might happen in a minute, not to worship him and not to get wisdom from him, it won't rain on their country. And that might change their mind. Because these aren't going to be glorified, magnified, heavenly beings entering this kingdom. They're going to be people like us. It says, this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, why would that be necessary? Won't everyone in the millennium be perfected? No, they're people like us. And guess what will happen over the course of time? Let's say Christ comes back, sets up the kingdom. It gets going. These people walk in. They, they all love Jesus. But they're just folks. They might sin. They could fall away or stumble. But also, they're going to have children. And what are their children going to be like? They're going to be like our children. <laughs> their children will be born of the flesh with a sinful disposition, in need of salvation, in need of a new birth. And it will be possible for them to live in the millennium and not love God or believe in Him, even though He's there. But if I believe, I mean trust, just the way it is now. You might know God is there, but trusting in Him, believing in Him, is a different thing than believing the fact of Him. Those are two different things. So, these people will be born into a world needing to believe and to learn about him. But they will be born into a world that is a virtual paradise. The curse on the earth will be lifted and nature will be restored and the, their world will be at peace and live under perfect justice and will be a paradise. There won't be flies in your soup, thorns and weeds in the backyard, acting without weeds. Just imagine it. <laughs> and it says, you know, that the wolf will lie down with the, the lamb and the lion with the kid and it says little children will be able to stick their, their hands in the holes of rattlesnakes and they won't get hurt by them because the, it'll just be the peace of God will rule nature. It'll be like it was in the garden. But the potential for human evil will be present and toward the end of the thousand years people will have a clear choice to make because very interestingly the book of Revelation says that after a thousand years, Satan will be released. He's going to be bound in prison. He won't be running around the world. But he's going to be released and he's going to come back and have a, a last little time of raging. And people will have a clear choice to follow him or follow the Messiah. And a lot of people will follow him. So well, why do all that? Why not just fix it all? Well, look, I think there's a whole purpose to the millennial structure, why God has ordained history as he has why the fall happened, why our history is happening, why the history of Israel happened, why the church age happened, why the judgment's going to happen, why the millennium's going to happen. Why the millennium? Because of the way people are. What, what do we say about our sin? Well, if I hadn't grown up in this kind of family, I, I wouldn't be like this. If, if I hadn't had this problem, I, I wouldn't be such a... If you hadn't put this in my path, I never would have fallen down this kind of... Thing. Well, look, 
for a thousand years there's going to be absolute peace perfect justice no excuse when Christ is reigning on earth and solving every problem and the world is a paradise and everyone has everything they ever wanted you know in terms of their own physical nourishment and needs what's the excuse going to be and the point is when sin rears its head again and people choose Satan over Christ it's to show that sin is not an external enforced condition upon you it's a matter of the malice of your heart against God that's what sin is and if everything is perfect it'll still come so I think there's an object lesson in it all wickedness is not a matter of circumstance it's malice in the heart and as it expresses itself in a perfect world sin will be seen for what it really is so by the end rebellion will rise again but for most of those years the thousand years nation will not lift up sword against nation and they will not train for war there won't be military budgets there won't be armies. and that's the point of verse 4 a description of this wonderful life under the Messiah each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken that last sentence is the guarantee that this is going to happen the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken this is the way it will be is it not amazing that we should seek to build what only God can do not that there shouldn't be a United Nations, I don't care if there's one or not, personally, but if there's going to be one that works, it needs to be uniformly humbled before the true and living God. It needs to do homage to the Son, as Psalm 2 says. And of course, that's never going to happen. And there will be no lasting peace until Messiah comes. You know, it's really interesting, the time in which we live. You live in a very interesting time. Not many people get to see the millennium click over. <laughs> all the zeros at the end of the years right and there's always this expectation of a new day dawning we've all we've all been taught you know that human evolution is progressing and we're growing and we're learning we're so enlightened now compared to times of the past and you know as we enter the new millennium they talked about a new world order and all of this stuff and the collapse of communism and all of our, our arch enemies are suddenly our friends or at least we're living in a peaceful coexistence with them and all these wonderful things and so we enter the third millennium and what happens the greatest, most murderous, grand-scale, monstrous evil to strike our country in a very long time. Terrorism all over the world, here in America, and hatred, you just see it everywhere. And they had all these polls in the news this week, not that we're the center of everything, but just the attitudes of the world, the heart of the world. We get blown to bits, and everyone hates us more now than they ever have, because we were attacked. <laughs> And you just go, why? In the Holy Land, unholy hatred is unleashed every day. At a level where people will give their lives to kill time and time and time and time again. We have our people slaughtered and they hate us. It just doesn't make sense. Sin doesn't make sense. Sin acts from motives of all kind, jealousy and bitterness and envy and lies and the need for strife. And Satan just does his thing and stirs it up. But we follow right along. So don't plan on everyone sitting under his vine real soon or under the fig tree with no one to make them afraid. It isn't going to happen anytime real soon unless Jesus comes back 
real soon. I'm praying for that. I hope you are too. Pray that Jesus comes quickly. But right now, under God's providential sovereignty, he is permitting people to go their own way. Try it without me, he's saying. Let's see what you can build. And we are learning, if we open our eyes, that it doesn't work. It doesn't work without him. You can't put half of Micah 4.3 on a building, on the United Nations building, and leave out the part about God and expect it to work. You can't do it. The assumption of doing that is that we are, in the, we are the ones who will do God's work. We, we are the gods, the determiners, the deciders, the wise ones. So who do we think we are? Well, we're learning. We're learning who we are. So what do we do living in times like this? In a world of confusion and hatred and strife, when every man is afraid under his vine or fig tree, what do we do? Well, verse 5 tells us. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So be faithful. That's all we're supposed to do right now. Be faithful to our great God. Proclaim him. Walk. Live in his ways. The world will go its way. We may not see Christ's kingdom come in our lifetime, but we will see it someday and have a part in it. And it will come. It will come. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So live in the light of that day. That's what we're supposed to be doing right now. Be in your heart, in your attitude, in your conduct, a glimmer of that kingdom now. Isn't that what God wants for you? That's exactly what He wants you. That's why you live, Christian. That's why you're in this world. It's not to make money. It's not to collect toys. It's not to have a good time. And you can do all that stuff. I don't care. But that's what you're here for. That's the main thing. To be a light of that kingdom in this dark world. So people can get a sense of the God that's going to provide that someday. That's going to do that and be drawn to Him. Lay down bitterness. Lay down self. Live for something more worthwhile than you. Our humility, our love, our peace should be the world's look into Christ's reign because he should reign in us. That's what we're saying when we're saying we're a Christian. He is our Lord. He is our King. He reigns over me. Look at me and see his reign. That's what we're saying. How you doing? in anticipation of the day when what ought to be will be, let's determine to be what we ought to be. And if we were all fully committed to that, we would see wonderful things happen, amazing things happen in our homes, in our community. And all that's holding us back is, is just hanging on to stuff we need to just lay down. That's the only thing holding us back. Lay it down. Live not for yourself, but for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the coming Lord of the earth. He's our boss. It's all about his kingdom. I'm, I can't wait. So we live for him and the joy that he brings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sin, who fitted us 
to be with him forever, not by our works, but by his good grace. We give you great thanksgiving for that. We pray that we would be worthy to live according to that grace in a way that would be a light to the world. Jesus asked us to be light, salt, preservative, to give guidance. Let us live in a way that would magnify your kingdom, that people could actually see it in the way we conduct ourselves. We thank you in his name we pray. Amen.